Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're multitasking. But what if you could also be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. So multitask right now. Get your quote now at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hit Tom. Tom, you're muted. Here we go. Bill, got me? We got you, Tom. Sorry, man. Uh, sorry, Bill. Bill Belichick will never get that 15 seconds of his life back. We will never get that 15 seconds of our lives back, all because of our next guest, Tom Kern. Uh, And Tom, uh, we were saying during break how the pandemic has basically thrown all standards and expectations of television broadcasting out the window. Anywhere anyone is, you just pop open the phone, you press the button, you throw on the Great Gazoo t-shirt, and you're on TV. Hello. Hello. Hello, Shireen. Hi. How are you, Tom? Tremendous. And you know what, Mike? This is granular. This is how it goes. This is when we, you and I talk back and forth about a varied uh, and assorted things related to the NFL. This is how it works. I'm wandering around uh, bucolic Freetown, Massachusetts, having a conversation with you. So this is this is much more organic, I think. So is this like early Labor Day vacation for you? Are you working today? Help us understand exactly what I the Tom Curran vibe is. I can't get the stupid angle correct on this friggin' phone. Am I, I keep turning it too far. Just hold it what steady. A- it doesn't matter. Just hold it steady and we'll get through this. Uh, let's a- begin, Tom. The main reason we contacted you, not to see your Great Gazoo t-shirt or watch your image freeze up or have you make us wait 15 seconds before you say something. We need to know your reaction to the news that Cam Newton is the starting quarterback. Even though they haven't announced it, they made the guy a captain, so it's pretty damn clear he's going to be the starting quarterback. Yeah. As Peter Griffin said, oh, my God, who the hell even cares? <laughs> Everyone knew he was going to be the starter. 
it's been <laughs> obvious for like two and a half weeks that he was going to be the starter. I mean, if he wasn't the starter and he was taking twice the reps of Brian Hoyer and Jared Stidham, that would be coaching malpractice in my estimation. Um, he really won the job, though. And I think it's interesting in that you see a guy from a distance, Shireen, and you think he's one way and you wonder about his authenticity and how he's packaged, you know, and branded. And then you see him on the regular out of practice and how authentic and consistent and um, real he is. And you can see why he does have the gravitational pull that he actually does have. And that's what we've seen from Cam Newton. That's why I'm not surprised that he was also named uh, captain in addition to starter. Yeah, I was going to ask that, Tom. Were you surprised that he was a captain and the fact that he's only been there since July? I think he signed July 8th or whatever it was. So he hasn't been around those teammates very long. And I know it's traditional that the quarterback gets to become the captain. I mean, Brady was, what, an 18-time captain or something like that. But still, the fact that he was only around his teammates a short period of time, that didn't surprise you at all that he was named a captain? Yeah, I think a little bit that it, you know, the news that he was, but the way Bill Belichick is, it's really interesting. Psychologically, Mike Lombardi once said there's two different ways to motivate a guy, and one is through money, and the other is through responsibility. And Bill Belichick has done that through the years. Gerard Mayo is a second-year player named a captain and sent out as the only guy to take uh, the coin flip, and that's a team in 2008 and 2009 that, you know, really need a leadership. Um, he's done it with Devin McCourty. <clears throat> the more leadership responsibility he heaps on guys, the more buy-in he seems to get from them. So I think it's it's a fascinating psychological ploy that he understands that, look, Cam, I know we're paying you a million dollars, but that's just bookkeeping. Who cares? You got a $100 million contract you signed five years ago. Let's just make it a captain of a very good team, and let's see what we can do here. And I think that stuff can actually work. And, Tom, you know, I look at the outcome of the player vote, and we know from past experience that it doesn't matter who votes. It's matter. It, what matters is who counts the votes. So uh, and not that I'm disputing that the players voted legitimately and fairly and squarely Cam Newton a captain, but it does have a psychological impact. And I feel like that Bill Belichick has been going out of his way to boost Cam Newton. He had the radio interview earlier this week where he said, nobody works harder than Cam Newton. And, you know, is this part of the effort to push the buttons on Cam Newton or has Bill Belichick learned from all the things that rankled Tom Brady that you can't withhold praise for 20 years at some point you have to go out and throw a bouquet in the general direction of a guy who is getting the job done right for you yeah and i think the interesting thing you know that belichick would say as it relates to brady is i said plenty of things over 20 years about tom you know the no quarterback i'd rather have and um you know tom works as hard as anyone takes care of himself but they were always kind of platitudes or they were wrapped in generalities this with cam was just so flowing and over the top in that you know he finds what he's not good at and works on and none of us are good at doing that but cam does that i think it is specific to the motivation of different players because belichick understood 
early on that Brady responded to it. And I think in the latter half of his career, um, there was a weariness from Belichick about a Brady that he perceived to be a changing Brady, which you should change as you go from 25 to 35 to 40. And Brady's motivations were different, and it didn't really play the same. It wore his ass out. He still responded to it, but it had long since gone from being, well, yeah, I got to go prove it to Bill. He was proving it for himself and his teammates during the last five years. One more for you on Cam Newton, because there's other Patriots issues we want to get to. The Cam Newton that I saw those years in Carolina, on the days that things are going well, you can see it, you can sense it. The demeanor is very positive. The big smile, the Superman gesture, giving the balls to the kids in the stands after he scores a touchdown. But there were those days where it just wasn't going their way, and all too often you kind of see a a dejected Cam Newton. Like, How much are they working on getting Cam to not – throw in the towel if they happen to be down, oh, I don't know, 28 to three in the second half of a Super Bowl, you know, to get that mentality in place where even if it doesn't feel like your day, it can become your day, any given drive, any given play, any given throw. I don't know how hard they're working on that because it would be presuming that he's not good at doing it. I think they'd have to see it first. Now, one thing that Josh McDaniels, I think, is excellent at is maintaining positivity. Um, Cam has to be a leader because it is a wide receiver and tight end room so void of experienced, talented players. I mean, you have Julian Edelman, and then you have two rookie tight ends, and you have a converted corner from Bemidji State and Gunnar Olszewski, and you have kind of a up-and-down, perhaps maybe good, perhaps maybe horrible first rounder in Nikhil Harry and undrafted Jacoby Myers and Demir Bird, who's a you know mid-tier free agent signing. So he can't go in the tank. He has to be a guy who carries the fortunes of the team and the attitude of the offense consistently at a high level too. So that's a great question. I don't know how he'll be, but they can't afford to have that happen with him. And yeah, I think we saw it last year with Brady when, when there were times where he'd be a little morose kicking rocks now his the aspect of that to him shireen and, and mike was that he was fatigued by i know how it's going to look when the season starts you haven't done anything oh let's go get antonio brown right before the season begins because we know that we were insufficiently prepared and then that blows up too yeah, that, that's my question, Tom. Every time a big-name free agent comes up, we joked earlier, Earl Thomas and Jadavion Clowney are going to end up in, in New England. But every time a big name comes on the market, Adrian Peterson now, we hear, oh, the Patriots are interested, the Patriots are interested, whether they are or whether they aren't. And Mike has this theory that the Patriots were never interested in Leonard Fournette. They just kind of threw it out there. How how much of that interest that we heard about was real and how much of it was, no, they're not really interested in Leonard Fournette? I think it was much more the latter. They were kicking tires and, and finding out what was out there, as any director of player personnel, director of pro personnel has to do. Um, and it got, as Mike pointed out very accurately, agents – teams, agents in particular, are excited to always use the Patriots as the stocking horse to drive up the price. Now, I think what's interesting is Bill Belichick looks at that and says, that's fine. 
somebody overpays or somebody makes a panic buy on someone that we're not interested in, that's great. And if by extension, the player on my roster who plays that position gets the vibe that I'm looking to replace him, I don't even have to yell at him today. Generally, he's going to work even harder. So, Mike, you're exactly right. We've seen it through the years and covering the team, you know, whenever any player of some note is released, we do deal with a wave of other Patriots interested. Now, they do make plenty of signings that are adventurous and not what we would expect, (laughs) and name signings as well. So that's fair, too. I mean, Antonio Brown being a perfect example of it. Um, so you got to stay loose on it. Oh, Bo Curran's do you there. Do you see – oh, Bo, get get, uh, get Bo on camera. Come on, let's Bo. see Bo. Where's Bo? Uh, while, while Bo arrives, let's start Come framing in. another question here. Oh, there's Bo. Uh, you, on, don't, you don't keep uh, – no, Bo – yeah. Bo, uh, Bo's very slow. Bo's like his dad. Well, All right, let me ask you this. Go ahead. Oh. All right, well, so did you. Uh, Earl Thomas, Jadavian Clowney, we joke that maybe they'll end up on the Patriots. Do you see any way the dominoes fall where either of those two two guys end up uh, in, in New England sooner rather than later? Wouldn't Jadavian Clowney have to drop his asking price quite a bit? The interesting thing is the Patriots are now sitting on about $35 million worth of rooms, having released Mohamed Sanu um, this week, and – they could certainly afford you, Davian Clowney. I just don't think that they are in the market right now for adding big-ticket players. But they're always in the market for adding good players. If Jadavian Clowney was willing to come in on a year deal, um, I think that that certainly would make sense. As to Earl Thomas, it's such a young secondary. you got a guy who is a two-time now loser in his last two locations as having been kind of a pain in the ass. So with an impressionable young defense that's dealing with a ton of opt-outs and a leadership void, I don't know if you want to bring in Earl Thomas. Again, in both instances, though, the Patriots need better talent on their roster right now. It's not a very talented roster on either side of the ball, regardless of what they did defensively last year because of the free agent exodus and the number of opt-outs, which was eight in several key guys on defense. Another name, Tom, that was just released is is Adrian Peterson. And, and the, again, the Patriots are in on all these guys. Would he be a guy, you think? Do they need an upgrade at that position that he would be a guy they might look at? Adrian Peterson seems to me to make more sense than, than Leonard Fournette just because the Patriots I, were interested a couple of years ago. And the release of Adrian Peterson, if you look at the Patriots running back room, they're pretty stacked. Mike Tannenbaum went as far as to call it the best running back room in the NFL. I don't think it's that. I think it's the most versatile. Um, they have players who can do all things, whether it's James White or Rex Burkhead, who's ver- who's uh, a, a multi-talented back, or Michelle or Damian Harris. But I think Adrian Peterson still has something in the tank, don't you guys? I definitely think yeah. he's still got something in the tank. Now, he's always going to think he's got something in the tank, even when he's 75 years old. But uh, th- th- it's going to be interesting to know exactly what the story was behind this. Do they just think he doesn't have it anymore? Was there something else? Do they feel more strongly in an Antonio Gibson or a Bryce Love? I don't know. But, you know, this is the kind of, of guy hungry for a championship that, Again, if he if he's just above that basic threshold of what the Patriots are looking for, and if he won't get upset if he doesn't get a lot of touches, he just makes sense to me as somebody the Patriots would want. 
hundred percent. Here's the flip side of that, Mike, and this is the question that we're all kind of broaching every once in a while. Are the Patriots still that destination location in 2020 that a player thinks he's going to be able to compete for a ring here? Or was Tom Brady the common denominator in that? Do those players look at it and say, well, Hightower's sitting out and Chung's sitting out and they lost Van Noy and it's just Edelman at wide receiver. I don't know how good this team's going to be. And say, I don't want to go up and be in the, under the Belichick you know, regime, which is very demanding to go eight and eight, nine and seven, seven and nine, and have happened to me what happened in the playoffs last year when the Patriots played Tennessee. So that to me is uh, going to be really interesting as the years pass here, as Belichick's, you know, certainly in the autumn of his coaching career. Are the Patriots the destination that they were for the last 15 years? And I think what Cam Newton's doing makes them more attractive. In the presence of Bill Belichick, the guy who flashed those rings prior to Super Bowl 54. And, you know, one of the things that underscores how we all view Belichick at this point, he can throw away a second round pick on Mohamed Sanu and nobody cares. Nobody's going to criticize him. That's one of the privileges of being Bill Belichick. But in hindsight, not exactly a great move to burn a second-round pick to get Mohamed Sanu, who you just keep for half of a season, and then cut. Why is Mohamed Sanu not a Patriot anymore? No, and but he does get murdered locally in New England, Bill Belichick does, when he makes a mistake. And he has been for the Sanu signing. And that's what's interesting is nationally, um, you know, on you know, whether it be the NFL Network or um, people who don't have the day-to-day relationships with Bill they really won't mention that hunk of lettuce in the teeth that is him picking wide receivers. <laughs> yeah. And nobody wants to mention it. Um, with Sanu, made sense to me at the time. I thought it was a great signing because he is so, excuse me, the message is coming in. Um, he is, he was so productive, so shorthanded, um, such a good and versatile player in Atlanta that it made perfect sense. Then he got here, he hurt his ankle in his second game. And then after that, Mike and Shireen, he wasn't the same. And in this training camp, I mean, if we in the media horde can watch it and say, my God, he is glacial, then certainly the coaching staff is seeing it as well. He just fell off the cliff. Well, we'll see if he lands on a cliff somewhere else. I know the 49ers have expressed potential interest. They were a team that was looking at him last year. That's one of the reasons why the Falcons were able to get a second-round pick because the 49ers have had an affinity for Mohamed Sanu. All right, Tom, uh, we're putting you on the spot here. AFC East, what's your projected finish top to bottom, one through four for the Patriots and the three teams that have been trying to be the Patriots for the past 20 years? Uh, Bills, Patriots. Dolphins, Jets, perhaps not a 10-win wow. team in the box. I Is that your way of, like, the reverse jinx, that, that this is your your kind of roundabout rooting interest? Like, you know, because I know you're a Patriots fan, and you can't hide it. I don't care what – the Great Gazoo t-shirt doesn't <laughs> doesn't fool me. I know what's on under that t-shirt. I know what, I know what tattoo it's covering. But uh, uh, you really think – you really think that – that Bill Belichick and Cam Newton together can't overcome the Buffalo Bills. Mike, they can't overcome the fact that they have just Julian Edelman at wide receiver and two rookie tight ends 
who have never played in the NFL. They've been without tight ends for the last two years going into this year. They didn't replace Gronk. They didn't replace Brandon Cooks. They didn't replace Danny Amendola. And now on defense, they've lost Hightower and Chung, Kyle Van, Brandon Roberts, Danny Shelton. Um, they're going to start rookies at linebacker. The best and most important defensive player is a guy named Jawan Bentley. Um, yes, they have defending player of the year in Stephon Gilmore, but you just there's nothing there. And as a result, part of me would think Miami, who beat them in the last game of the year when it mattered, could certainly overtake the Patriots, and the Patriots could finish third. Wow. Well, if that happens, that'll be wow. something. I'm not willing to go that far, Tom. Uh, and even if they finish third, there's a chance they still get into the playoffs now that there's that seventh spot. All right, uh, go do whatever you're going to do in the water. Take care of Bo, <laughs> and uh, we'll talk to you soon, buddy. Thanks for some of your time. Thank you, guys. Take care. See you, Tom. There he is. Tom Curran, NBC Sports Boston. When we return, John Mara, the Giants co-owner, had some comments on Thursday about players protesting during the anthem and other related issues. We'll let you hear what he had to say, and we'll have our reactions to it when PFT Live continues right after this. I want to feel like when we walk off the field after the last game that we play, whenever that is, that we're moving in the right direction. That, that we have the pieces in place to compete for a Super Bowl um, and that the, the combination of, of people that we have here is going to work going forward. That, that's what Steve and I need to feel like. And I think we give the same answer every year um, because that's truly what it is. You can't pin it to a certain uh, win-loss total, but you just want to feel like this group that we have together right now um, is building something that's going to compete for a championship. John Mara, Giants co-owner, who has that kind of out of sync, kept the GM, fired the head coach. Is Dave Gettleman safe? I, I don't like the idea of the coach and the GM being on different tracks. I think they need to have equal accountability. They need to arrive at the same time. They need to leave at the same time in order to promote harmony and some sense of functionality within an organization. It's hard to tell where Dave Gettleman currently stands in the estimation of the team, but you know, I, you don't get the impression that that anyone is completely and entirely safe unless John Merrick gets what he wants at the end of the season where he has that feeling that they've done what they need to do. I, I can't tell how good the Giants are going to be, Shereen. Look, they've got Saquon Barkley. They've got Daniel Jones. The offensive line and defensive line is the real question mark. And when they've been great in recent years, they've been great because they've been great on the offensive and defensive lines. Yeah, absolutely. And you look at their corner position and all the moves they made in recent days to try to shore that up. And you worry about what they've got in secondary, especially if they can't, as we talked earlier, if you can't get after the quarterback, you really expose those corners and, and, and safeties back there. And they don't have enough. Uh, they have too much time to deal with those receivers. And so, yeah, I have some real questions about the Giants. I think what I have had answered in this offseason for me or in training camp is Joe Judge. I, I wondered whether he could be a head coach. You know, so many of Bill Belichick's assistant coaches have failed when they've gone on to be co head coaches elsewhere. But I think he's done some unorthodox things that we've wondered about that have won over his team. I mean, if you just watch that video of him rolling in the mud, diving on a football, and, and the reaction of the players – I think this is a guy who's won over that locker room. Now, how that translates, again, to wins and losses in the future of the program, I don't know. 
But I do think that they have the right coach in place who can win games if they get him the right talent. But again, we go back to Dave Gettleman. Is he going to get him the right talent? And right now, I don't think this is a team that has enough talent to, to win the NFC East. And Shereen, here's the key. If you're going to have any of that Bill Belichick DNA, and it's impossible to have worked in New England and not bring some of that with you, even if you say, I'm going to be my own guy. The key is getting your team to buy in. Matt Patricia has had a hard time getting Lions players to buy in, as evidenced by guys like Darius Slay, Damon Harrison, guys who never accepted the way Patricia does things. If Judge is able to make that connection early where guys do buy in, even if the results don't immediately come. See, if this reminds me of Doug Marone, not a Bill Belichick disciple, but when he first got to Jacksonville in 2017 and he beat the crap out of the players in training camp and they were they were upset, they were grumbling, they were talking to reporters about what, what in the world is this guy doing, who's he think he is, and then they started winning and that makes it okay. See, that's the key. If you can keep your guys behind you, even if the results aren't immediate, then you establish that bond that can buy you enough time to maybe turn it into something and become the coach that you can be. Otherwise, you get run out of town before you get a chance to fully blossom. But I agree with you. I mean, you know, there there have been plenty of complaints about the running in practice. Coaches aren't happy because they have to run, too, if they make mistakes. But that video of him diving on the loose ball and the the players spraying him with water and and the way they reacted to it, boy, it made me think that whatever he's been doing for the past month, he's doing it right. Yeah, no question about it. We, you know, he talked about removing the red shirt from Daniel Jones, let him get a few hits here and there. I mean, just some really unorthodox things in training camp that, that we haven't seen before. I saw the one, I don't know if you saw this, where the defensive backs, he put a tennis ball in their hands and wrapped it with tape. And the purpose of that was so the defensive backs would learn not to hold on the receivers. I had never seen that before, and I've seen a lot of things in covering practices over 25 years. I had never seen that, and I don't know if they do that in New England or not, but I had never seen that in New England. But all those things that he has done that that perhaps that we haven't seen in the NFL uh, before unorthodox have seemed to work for the Giants, and I think they're going to be a more disciplined, better team on the field. Just will it translate into wins? Interesting division for them to be in. Nobody knows what Washington's going to be. The Eagles already banged up. The Cowboys, plenty of talent. The production has to match the talent. They've had plenty of talent in recent years, and more often than not, they fail to live up to it. Maybe there's an opening there for the Giants to surprise everyone. All right, it's not going to be a surprise when the games get started that there will be some form of protesting during the national anthem. I think the NFL's bigger question for now is, will there be a point this season where players refuse to play games because of social justice issues? John Mara, Giants co-owner, meeting with reporters via video conference yesterday, also addressed his thoughts on where things currently stand as it relates to players protesting during the anthem. Here he is. You know, my preference is that everybody stand, but... Um, if you decide that in your conscience that um, uh, you think taking a knee is the right thing to do, I'm going to support your right to do that because I believe in the First Amendment and I believe in the right of, of people, including and especially players. I understand the fact and accept the fact that that's not going to be necessarily popular with certain segments of our, of our fan base, but I think it's the right thing to do. It's come a long way in three years. Now, look, let me say two things. First of all, 
I'd rather he not articulate his own preference because for any player who's in the process of searching his heart and soul to come up with a decision, he's now aware of the thumb that the owner would put on the scale to tip it towards standing for the anthem. I think every player should be encouraged to make their own decision. And my preference is that you do what you think is right, not my preference is that you stand. I think that to truly respect the rights of the players to protest and to truly reflect what the NFL has been trying to say through Commissioner Roger Goodell, every owner should be saying these players need to make their own decisions. However, he mentioned the reaction. And here's what he said back in 2017 when this issue really was taking off. In all my years being in the league, I never received more emotional mail from people than I did about that issue of players kneeling during the national anthem. If any of your players ever do that, we are never coming to another Giants game. It wasn't one or two letters. It was a lot. It's an emotional, emotional issue for a lot of people, more so than any other issue I've run into. All the more reason for him not to state his own preference. All the more reason for him to make it make sure that anyone out there who would be ready to send more letters, I didn't know anybody sent letters anymore, but anyone that would be ready to send letters, ready to huff and puff and maybe blow the house in, Part of the obligation of the owners is to truly have their players' backs. And I don't think it's enough, Shireen, to say, hey, I've got your back. You've got to stand up to the bullies. You've got to stand up to the haters. You've got to stand up to the fans who are going to say, I'm never coming to a game again, and say, fine, we don't want your business if you don't understand that these players have the right to protest, to bring awareness to an important societal issue that has gone on long enough. That's what they need to be willing to do. When owners start doing that, that's when players will start believing that owners truly have their backs. Mike, you've used the line many times, and it's great, of trying to thread the needle. And we know how difficult that is if you've ever tried to thread the needle. And that's what some of these owners are trying to do. And John Mara said more than Jerry Jones has said, uh, but he still left some doubt there of, I would prefer for you to stand. And, and you know, Things have changed so much. He was one of the guys, John Mara was, who, who had the NFL write a policy on the anthem, which obviously didn't go over well with the players. And after all the backlash, it was kind of thrown out. But things have really changed, not over the last two years or three years or whatever, but things have changed over the last few months. They've changed a lot. And, and I think owners have to realize, and a lot of them have, and coaches too. We saw it with Bill O'Brien saying, I'll kneel with their pl with our players if they if they want to kneel. And and so things have changed so much that that's where we are, that, that owners and coaches have to come out and totally back their players. At this point, sponsors aren't going to pull out. They're, they would look much worse if they pulled out at this point. So that's not even a consideration anymore. Maybe it was in 2016 when Colin Kaepernick first started kneeling. That's not an issue now. Fans saying, I'm not going to watch your games anymore. I'm going to burn your jerseys. I'm not going to game. Fans aren't going to games anyway. Who cares? They're still going to watch. Let's be honest. They might say they're not going to watch. They're still going to watch. The NFL is still going to be the number one thing on TV, regardless of what happens here. But owners have to are going to have to make a choice. It's going to be are you going to continue to, to side with Trump or are you going to side with your players? And frankly, that's, that's what it is at this point. It, it, it's that decision that they're going to have to make. And Jerry Jones and, and John Mayer are right in the middle of that. Jerry Jones last addressed his position on the anthem issue, his effort to thread the needle by fashioning a compromise where players would stand during the anthem but find some other way to protest. 
It's been a long 10 days and a lot's happened in between. Last Friday when he appeared yet again on 105.3 The Fan in Dallas, wasn't asked about it, even though I think the world changed dramatically, the sports world particularly, from Tuesday to Friday of last week. Then came Tuesday of this week, wasn't asked about it again. I don't know this, but I believe that the folks at the flagship station for the Dallas Cowboy broadcast have been told, ixnay on the anthem questions. Uh, I wonder if, though, he's going to want to address it now. We've seen Dak Prescott. Yesterday, there were more comments suggesting, I think it was Tyrone Crawford, saying that players have the green yeah. light to protest. When I see these, I, I, st- I, since it's coming from the players and not from ownership, part of me is skeptical that there's been this, this opening of the floodgates where they've been told, do whatever you want. Sorry, forget everything that we've said and done over the last three years. We've had an organic personality change, and we're now going to let you protest. I think that this idea that they've got a green light to protest is all part of the effort to coax them to stand for the anthem and then find some other platform for protesting. Well, you go back to, to last year when they, got, when they acquired Michael Bennett and they acquired Robert Quinn and both in trades, and both of those guys ended up standing for the national anthem, which they had not done previously. They had both protested in the past. But how did the Cowboys get them to do that? Well, they gave them contractual things that led them to stand for the anthem. Now, Michael Bennett wandered with a a cup of water in the background. He didn't stand with toes on his line. Toes on the line, I'm sure, as Jerry Jones would have appreciated, but he certainly stood for the anthem. He didn't sit. He didn't kneel. He didn't stay in the locker room. He didn't do all those things, and the Cowboys are one of the only teams in the NFL who have never had a player protest during the anthem. Jerry Jones has always found a way to make that happen. I just think it's going to be much harder this year to to find a way to make that happen because Don Terry Poe has already been one who's come out and said – I don't care what my teammates do. I am going to kneel for the national anthem. So how he fixes all this, I don't know. But I am going to be – I'll be more surprised that the, if the Cowboys don't have a player protest than I will be that Adrian Peterson got released today. The way Tyrone Crawford explained it yesterday, he said that they want to do something that will be big. They want to do something that will be conspicuous. And it just makes me wonder – Is there something else in the works? And is this part of, you know, did Jerry come up with something where he said, hey, guys, how about doing this instead of kneeling during the anthem? And explaining to them, look, the kneeling during the anthem gets a lot of people upset. They don't understand. Let's come up with a different way to get our point across that isn't diluted by that 30% of society that's going to lose their minds whenever someone takes a knee. So I just feel like there's something percolating. There's something happening. And the fact that it's coming from the players makes me feel that that they're trying to set the stage for whatever ultimately is done is something the players came up with, not something that Jerry Jones cajoled them into coming up with the way that he'll throw his arm around a guy just as it's time to work out a contract and get him to see it Jerry Jones' way and to understand that Jerry Jones' way and the players' way are the same way. One last point on this, though, and this is something that I've mentioned twice this week, and as we get closer and closer to next Thursday night, this is something we all need to understand. It's something the NFL and its teams need to understand. Protests during the anthem are going to take a back seat to the reaction by that segment of society that is going to be very upset, Shireen, 
when they see on the rear bumpers of the helmets the names of victims of police violence and systemic racism. That is going to be a very controversial thing once people understand that it's coming. And, you know, we're talking to a very small niche audience out of the greater scope of people who will turn on a football game. You know, over the course of a year, how many millions will watch a game? You have 100 and 20 million plus watched the Super Bowl. There are millions of fans out there that aren't paying any attention to any of the run-up to the season. They'll turn on the games when the games start. They're going to see the close-ups. They're going to see names like George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, etc. And uh, there's going to be a reaction. And it's going to be a significant reaction. And it may go all the way up to the White House when it's time for people to start tweeting their reaction to this effort. And, and so I think at a time when the NFL needs to be concerned about what happens during the anthem, they need to spend some time being concerned about the blowback to the names on the back of the helmets because it's coming. It is coming, and, and all those things are coming. And the end zones. We didn't even talk about the end zones. When people see the end zones, I don't think they realize what those end zones are going to say. And there are going to be people who are going to be upset, even though it says in racism in one end zone. I, I just think that that, that is going to upset a small segment of the population. And they're going to say, again, I'm going to turn off the NFL. I'm never watching a game again. I didn't watch the game, and yet – I, the the vast majority of people are still going to watch the NFL. I mean, we, we see it every year, um, you know, 2016 when Colin Kaepernick first started protesting during the anthem, I'm never watching another NFL game and the ratings have just continued to climb. So until the ratings start to decline, uh, I don't think the NFL is going to have a great concern about this. There will be some, a m- minority of owners, including Jerry Jones, who probably will and try to work out some compromise, uh, which he is, he is great at that as you pointed out he does it in so many ways and so many different facets of his organization Uh, but he's done that but the vast majority of people are still going to watch the NFL and the ratings are going to continue to climb and until they don't I don't think the NFL as a whole is going to worry about this about what other people think and tweet and say but here's the thing in 2016 the ratings did drop because of a very hotly contested presidential election. The NFL believed in 2017 the ratings would rebound. They didn't in 2017. And there are some who believe that one of the issues was the anthem protest, that some of the people who claimed they were done with the NFL, at least for this year, made good on that promise. And and throughout the Colin Kaepernick collusion case against the NFL, one of the themes that Mark Garagos and his legal team was pursuing was this idea that there was an equal percentage on each side of the issue that felt very strongly about it, and that for whatever reason the NFL chose to cater to the percentage that was huffing and puffing about anthem protests. What's going on now is the owners recognize that if they align with that crowd, they're potentially going to have wildcat strikes that play out and games are going to be missed. At a time when they're worried about the pandemic, they got to worry about players walking out. And so the owners, and, and whether it's business reasons or whether they just finally realize it's the right thing to do, I feel like they are starting to balance it out. And that's what's resulting in the effort to thread the needle because it's not enough to be heavy-handed anymore. It's not good enough to say we're going to stand for the anthem no matter what other players on other teams do. You have to find a way to show your players that you truly are behind them. And I think for some of the owners, it's been a little clumsy. And like I said earlier, I want owners to come out and say, we've got our players' backs and show it 
by standing up to those who are trying to bully the NFL and its players into not protesting, whether it's during the anthem, whether it's with the names on the helmets, whether it's the words at the back of the end zones, whatever it is that's going to get people upset and get them to rant and rave, the owners need to be willing to stand up and say to those people, take your business elsewhere. All right, we're going to take a break. When we return, we uh, in honor of what the Mets did for the late Tom Seaver, we're going to have a draft of the best NFL tributes we've ever seen. We'll do that when PFT Live continues right after this. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hockey from Thursday night, Flyers-Islanders game six, overtime, double overtime, broken stick by the defenseman. He's he's trying to defend without a stick. It's kind of hard to do in hockey. Ivan Provorov, he shoots, he scores. Flyers win, Flyers win, Flyers win. Game seven coming up on Saturday. The Islanders, I think, had a 3-1 lead in that series. Was it 3-1 or was it 3-0? Either way, they're in the process of blowing it. (laughs) Vegas Golden Knights and the Vancouver Canucks. Game six. I heard it. I heard it. Hit the pipe. JT Miller puts the Canucks up two to nothing. And how about Thatcher Demko? Thatcher Demko, 48 save shutout for the Canucks. Game seven coming tonight between Las Vegas or Vegas. Got to get it right. It's not Las Vegas. It's the Vegas Golden Knights and the Canucks. A couple of game sevens today. One at four Eastern, Colorado and Dallas, followed by Vegas and Vancouver from the same arena in Edmonton. Shireen will be watching her Dallas Stars. Probably the only game she's watched all year, but she's going to tune in for game seven and wear her Stars jersey (laughs) because now it's real. Now it's real. Check it out starting at 4 p.m. Eastern on USA and then 9 Eastern on NBCSN is Vegas and Vancouver. All right, Tom Seaver. And Tom Seaver was special to me as a, as a young baseball fan. I used to be a big baseball fan. Tom Seaver was one of the first baseball players I was ever aware of when I was a kid, right? When you're just five, six years old and you're starting to learn about sports, that's one of the first names I ever heard. It's one of the first baseball cards I ever had. He passed away this week at the age of 75. And the Mets had an interesting tribute to Tom Seaver. They put dirt on their knee 
because when he pitched, he got so low with that right leg that it would get dirt on it during the game. That's how he how how committed he was to getting the most out of his arm. The windup and the follow through resulted in dirt on the knee. So a great tribute, a creative tribute. And uh, that's what we're going to do today. The best NFL tributes. That's our draft. It, and this one was kind of challenging because when Matt Casey suggested it yesterday, Shereen, you and I were both like, really, this isn't going to be easy. And then once we started thinking about it, it's like, you know, this is going to be fun. So we're going to have some fun now with uh, the best NFL tributes of all time. Shereen asks me the question. I'll do the Cindy Brady routine and not come up with the answer. And she'll end up with the first pick. What do you got? Well, I'm actually going to give you a choice of two, and I came up with this one on my own, and I thought it was fitting for this. And and, and there's two two possible answers, so it, it's almost like what is the color blue? Who you can either say who was the first player to spike the ball in the NFL, or who was the first player to start the end zone celebration? And either one of those answers will suffice for this trivia question. The first player to spike the ball. And the first player to do an actual end zone celebration, there have been so many over the years. I don't know when it started. It's always been part of football. But I'll tell you what, the first guy that I think of when it comes to a celebration is Billy White Shoes Johnson. Was he the first one to do the end zone celebration? he was he was not the first one. So the first player to spike the ball was Giants receiver Homer Jacobs in the vintage year of 1965, for obvious reasons. And the first one to do the end zone dance, that came four years later. Elmo Wright actually did it first at the University of Houston, and then he brought it to the NFL with him uh, with to to the Chiefs, and he he is credited with starting. Uh, the end zone dance that would have been in 71 uh, with the Chiefs but he did it in college before that how in the hell are easy either of those even remotely regarded as easy questions I've been following football for 50 years and I had no idea on either of them. I've never known either one all I know is this for anyone who was born in 1965 <laughs> you are damn old <laughs> I was born in 1965 <laughs> as was Shireen but I was born later um, all right you get the first pick thank you for giving me that very easy question that makes me feel so foolish I didn't know the answer to either part of it okay so so there as as Mike said there are so many of these and it was a fun exercise to figure out which one of these to pick and I've ended up with so many it's hard to figure out which one to start with and and there are fantastic fantastic answers to this question but I think I'm going to start with with the Sean Taylor missing man formation uh, after Sean Taylor died in the in the first game back uh, Washington went out with 10 players on defense uh, in a game and with the realization that Sean Taylor wasn't there with them and, and it was a sad moment but a moving moment at the same time and, and I think that was one of the greatest tributes didn't care what happened on the first play it was a tribute to Sean Taylor and to this day we still remember who Sean Taylor is we talk about Sean Taylor and of course he was murdered um, in his house and in an unfortunate incident there but but no one has forgotten Sean Taylor in Washington or really in the NFL. Just an amazing talent and a guy who was in the process of turning his life around when his home was invaded by would-be robbers and he was shot in the leg in the artery and bled to death. And it was a great and fitting tribute by the Washington football team then. And it really is a shame because he was destined to be a Hall of Famer and he played with an intensity that was inspiring. It was fun to watch. He made the safety position uh, incredibly great. And when you think about him, Ed Reed and Troy Polamalu all would have been 
playing that position at the same time for all those years. And I think Sean Taylor may have ended up being the best of all of them if if he had been around to fulfill his full potential. All right, the first one I think of when I think of an NFL tribute, and this has been going on for a long time, you know, usually when there's someone connected to a team in a high-profile position who dies, we see the jersey patch or the helmet decal for one year. And when George Hallis passed away in the 80s, the Bears made that GSH a permanent part of the stripes on the side of their jersey. And it's always going to be there. And it's, you know, and, and he deserves it. And I've argued that, that like, like George Hallis, Don Shula, even though he didn't found the Dolphins, he's so connected to that team that they should have a permanent honor for him in the uniform, not just a one-year thing. But the GSH on the the, uh, the the sleeves of the Bears jerseys is, you know, I, I thought it was awesome at the time. And the fact that they continue to do it all these years later and will always do it, um, you know, a, a fitting tribute to, to one of the most important figures in the history of the sport. Yeah, absolutely. When you think of the Bears, you think of George Hallis and you see that patch and another one in the history of the NFL, you know, this generation – of kids don't remember a lot of those guys, but I think everybody knows who George, George Hallis is just because you see that patch and then you know his history uh, of the team. And so that's a, a very good one. And I had it on my list as one of the top ones too. God, there's just so many to do. Um, I think I'm like going to go with Seattle. This is the way Sims buys yeah. time. Go ahead. <laughs> right? I think I'm going to go with uh, Seattle and the 12s. Um, their tribute, and of course they can't use twelfth man because there's a a great college team that not. has the trademark of twelfth of, of man, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that would be Texas A&M, my alma mater. But I just like the tribute that they have to the fans. They retired the the number twelve with the organization. Nobody can wear that number. They they started the tradition in 1984 of raising the flag. Uh, for the 12s to, to tribute to the fans. And I just like that tradition of the fans, especially in Seattle, which you have to say is one of the best home fields in the NFL uh, that we've ever seen. And you, you see the, the, uh, the false start penalties that the offenses have because those fans are so loud. And I just think it's a great tribute that they've done in Seattle to, for the fans. Yeah, I, you know, I was going to say they're wasting their time doing it because, as we know, there's no competitive advantage to having fans in the stands. So I don't know why the Seahawks would attach any importance whatsoever <laughs> yeah. to uh, the, the, the impact of their fans on the ability to win football games because, again, there is no competitive advantage to having fans present. Uh, and if we say it enough times, maybe it'll eventually <laughs> sink in. All right, the next one for me, the perpetual flame. And they're taking it to the next level in what – what uh, Mark Davis calls the Death Star. And I really, you, you haven't watched the Star Wars movies if you think Death Star is something to aspire to be. But the new stadium, and I had one, uh, one reader point out that it looks more like a Roomba. But either way, in the new stadium, they've got this 3D laser printed eternal flame of Al Davis. And they've had it for every year since he passed in Oakland. And now they're going to have an even bigger bigger monument to Al Davis and apparently the flame isn't an actual flame they've got some technological way they're doing it but that's always going to be there that's always going to be in that stadium that's always going to be connected to that franchise that tribute to Al Davis who you think of you think Raiders you think Al Davis and uh it's just an amazing tribute uh, and look at that thing. Look at that torch. That's Al Davis, and that's the impact he had on that team, and he's going to loom over that franchise for as long as it's in the NFL and for as long as the NFL's around. 
Yeah, no question about that. And 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 again, it's another great owner that they've managed to to give a tribute to. You know, he started out as the NFL AFL commissioner and and has gone on and and did great things for the Raiders. And and now we're going to remember him uh, for forever. And Raiders fans certainly know who he is, even though he's been gone for a while. And I think that that's a fantastic tribute. Um, I'm going to go with Neil Smith just because it's a great story. And if you remember his, his celebration, it was for George Brett, or we thought it was for George Brett, the way he would swing the baseball bat, uh, when he, uh, after he got a sack and, and the way it actually started was he was watching Jay Leno one night on a Friday night. And Jay Leno did a golf swing, and he had been looking for some sort of sack celebration and says, that's it, that's it, that's what I'm doing, I'm doing a golf swing. And so they played a Monday night game, and he, had, he said he had three, three and a half sacks, and he decided at the time uh, to, to do the golf swing. And so he did it after every single sack. And, of course, it's on national TV, and everybody saw it. And some reporter asked him after the game, was that a tribute to George Brett? And he, and he said, I just said, yeah, it was a tribute to George Brett, even though it was intended to be a golf swing. And all of a sudden, it became this tribute to George Brett in Kansas City. And, of course, the Kansas City fans loved it, and that's what it turned into. And it was years before he actually told the real story that it wasn't really a tribute uh, to George Brett. But I, I, that one was just so fun uh, that it turned into something that it didn't start out to be, that uh, it, it was a great story. I'm not up on my late night show trivia, but I think it was Johnny Carson who did the golf swing, Shireen. And since you and I are of the same well, vintage, he said we should J- both he know said that. Jay Leno. He said Jay Leno, and when the story I read said Jay Leno. So, yes, but oh. you're right. It probably was Carson, but he said Jay he, Leno. He's, which makes it an even better story. He doesn't even <laughs> have the right guy that inspired right. the golf swing that became the baseball swing for George Brett, actually Jay Leno, actually Johnny Carson. And by the way, if you're watching this on Peacock, when the show's over, there's a bunch of great old Johnny Carson shows, which it's amazing to, to see the, the the comedians who were on there, the guests he had, the joke, and a lot of topical jokes that I don't know what he's talking about because it was it, it was funny at the time because it dealt with something going on at the time, but it's not going on now. But it just gives you a flavor for how the late night shows used to be, and they're really not all that different than they are now. All right, next one for me. Uh, I'm torn on this, but I'm gonna go. Um, I, I'm gonna go. When, when Wade Phillips showed up at Super Bowl 53 with his dad's hat and jacket, that to me was just incredible. The Bum Phillips 10-gallon hat and that big old jacket with the, the fur on the, on the lapels, uh, the tribute to his dad. Even though Wade had been to a Super Bowl and won one before, there was just something magical about that moment. There's so much about the connection between fathers and sons and parents and children in football, whether it's watching the games, going to the games, working together. That, to me, resonated, and uh, I, I wish a bigger deal had been made of it at the time. I got to give Warg Dunn some love before we go because, you know, this is a guy who has a great tribute to his mom, and he just gave away his 181st home this year. I was there for the first one that he gave away, and he started this in recognition of his mom, Betty Smothers, who was murdered. She was an off-duty police officer and was ambushed and and murdered. And he started this this Holidays for Homes program, and, and it's just turned into a huge thing. And and so I wanted to mention him. He was my honorable mention uh, for this thing if we had had a fourth one, because I, I think something like that is worth mentioning too, the great things that he's done. 
Yeah, I also had uh, Jerry Glanville always leaving two tickets for Elvis Presley. That was a tribute in a, in a weird sort of way. Uh, and Jerry Glanville, one of the all-time great characters in the NFL. All right, another great character, Bill Belichick, telling reporters today, not naming starters at any position, so he's not naming Cam Newton the starter. Cam Newton's a starter. He's a captain. He wouldn't be a captain if he wasn't the starter. We don't need Bill Belichick to name Cam Newton the starter. All right, all weekend long at ProFootballTalk.com. We'll be grinding away on the cuts, the moves. It's a crazy weekend, one of the craziest weekends of the year. Follow us all weekend long. We'll see you next Tuesday. We're off Monday. Everybody enjoy Labor Day. Be safe. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.